Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. None of this is fair. None of this is okay. Not only are we living in a world where we have gun violence, we also have natural disasters. We need radios that work. We need parents that can be communicated to properly within an appropriate amount of time. And we need multi-emergency response to know exactly where the event took place. Nobody wants this world that we're living in. It doesn't matter what political party these kids' parents belong to. They deserve to feel safe and loved and nurtured in their school. It's just hard to make that happen in the world that we live in right now. All right, folks, today we are excited to have Emerson Levy as a guest on our podcast. Emerson, you've probably heard her name in Oregon politics. She ran for the state legislature in 2020 in a pretty heavily Republican district and now is running in a similar district that is now has a Democratic advantage, which we talk about in this episode. But Emerson, she's a mom, attorney, a community leader. She's also involved at the Deschutes County Democratic Party level. I think she's the vice chair. She serves on the Oregon's task force for school safety. We talk a lot about school safety, guns, how to think about school shootings post-Uvalde. She's involved in her daughter's education. We talk about her daughter is seven. So like the pandemic has had a huge impact on Emerson's life as a parent and her daughter's life, obviously, as someone new to the public school system. So yeah, in the episode, we cover a lot of ground. We talk about Central Oregon and what makes it unique, what makes it similar to the rest of the state. We talk about the political demographics. Alex had some questions about affordability. I asked about housing. We talk about she's got a background, actually, on clean energy issues. So we wrap up talking about that. But I thought it was a, a really interesting episode. Alex, what were your high points? Yeah, it was interesting. I think she's definitely someone for everyone to pay attention to because I know that this is also considered to be one of the most competitive house races coming up in this cycle. And of course, while it is Democratic leaning, the polls nationally for Democrats are not looking well. Generally, that translates down to the local level. So I would say that plus four range makes it a little bit safer than if it was plus one or if it was you know split 50-50. But Definitely someone that you should, you know, have on your radar as this, I'm sure, will be a race where a lot of money is spent on both sides. So, yeah, we talk about a number of issues related to kind of what folks in Bend and the surrounding areas are facing, some of the school issues that you talked about, and then also kind of the evolution of Bend and how that's impacted, one, the community that is there now, but then, of course, the folks that have been there since the 90s and before who have seen been dramatically transformed over the years as the city has grown a lot. So uh, yeah, really interesting episode, lots of different topics covered. And because nobody's favorite part of the podcast is the intro, we're going to keep it short and get right into the episode. So here's our interview with Emerson Levy. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Emerson Levy. Emerson, how are you today? I'm great. I'm excited to be here with both of you. We are very excited to have you, especially because, which we'll ask about in a second, but a fellow podcast host, I've heard. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into that and policy and politics, can you give us a little overview of what brought you to Central Oregon and what made you want to engage in Oregon politics? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in Oregon for a while, and then my husband got a job at St. Charles, and we came over here when my daughter was a baby, and we've been here ever since. We love it here. It's such the perfect place to raise a family. I know people say that all the time. It's so cliche, but 
it absolutely is. And we feel just really lucky and blessed to be here. Central Oregon is very beautiful. So, so you come to Central Oregon and have you always kind of been politically engaged or was there an issue or a moment where you like, I just, I have to get involved, I have to run? You know, it's such an interesting question because I, I would say it started in my early 20s. I've just kind of always been involved, but I got a message from my piano teacher about like <laughs> six months ago. And she's like, I'm not surprised at all. Like you've always been this way. <laughs> so I guess like since forever, I, I guess, but my, my huge issue is school safety. Mm. Um, I've got a little one and I just, I always say as long as there's air in my lungs, I'll be like fighting for good schools and safe schools. How old is your daughter? She's seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing, so what, how seven is what grade in She's elementary? Second grade, which I like cannot believe. Oh, so this year was literally her first year of like actual school school. Absolutely. And so she's an only child. So I had never been in my daughter's school Whoa. until I believe March was the first time I'd actually stepped foot in the school. So, but for her, this is like, normal. This is all there is. There's nothing. She to has, <laughs> yeah, she has nothing to compare it to, which honestly I think was a good thing because, and I think it was a good thing for us as parents too, because I know a lot of other parents had more kind of what I call like ambiguous grief around how it used to be, but uh, we had no reference point for how it used to be when she was four, her preschool shut down and that was it for us. Whoa. So yeah, I mean, it's been a, it's been a journey we went to her first school play and then I kind of got an understanding of for other parents, how hard this must've been because it was such an amazing experience. I got to talk to the other parents and the kids got to, you know, do a full performance with musical numbers. And I got the idea of all that it's been missed, but I just didn't have a reference point for it. That's so interesting. Alex. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really strange to think about, but I'm sure that they'll be excited to actually set foot in school and meet some of their classmates in person too, and not just digitally. So Emerson, we know that you are currently running for House District 53, and that district, which we'll talk a little bit more about this too, of course, has changed since the last time that, that you ended up running in it. Can you kind of talk us through both the political composition, but then kind of just the composition of the district in general in terms of the industries, different types of people that are there, kind of the general geography of the area. I think that'd be helpful for the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It's so you're right. It's changed a lot. It used to be called the donut and it circled Ben. So it went all the way down to Sun River and then all the way back up to the tippy top of Redmond right before it hits Terrebonne. And now it looks very different. And we say it went from a donut to like a rustic beignet or something like that uh-huh. so the political makeup has changed it's been about a 10 point swing so i believe it was plus our six points maybe a little more and now it's democratic leaning three or four points depending on who you talk to and then also we we know that navs tend to match the neighborhood as well so if it's a dem leaning neighborhood typically that's going to be it and the inverse also true yeah and sort of like your daughter going to school your experience running this time, I imagine, has to have been a heck of a lot different than running last time. Like, I remember when we had Jimmy Crumpacker on the podcast, and he was talking about how when he was running for Congress in 2020, he was gaining a lot of momentum. He was doing in-person events and things like that. And then everything shut down, basically, and all of it moved to Zoom and things like that. And I think 
One thing that some people don't actually think about too, which of course I imagine you were doing a lot of Zoom events or phone calls and things like that is of course, not everybody actually has internet still in some of these areas that you're running in and you're trying to get votes from. What was the experience like running in 2020 and then how does it differ from today, which I imagine looks a little bit more like a traditional campaign? Yeah, that's such a great question because it's, I would like my daughter's school experience and this is her first year in the building. It's so different. So I was doing kind of the same thing. And then all of a sudden it was all over and I not run a campaign before. And so it was kind of, what do we do? And we just, I had a great campaign manager. She was another mom like me and run a bunch of businesses. And so we just kind of pivoted. We constantly pivoted, whatever came up, we just moved and we weren't married to any idea. We just said, okay, we'll try this, we'll try this. And yes, it was a lot of zoom. It was a lot of lit drops, a lot of just trying to be as creative as we possibly can. And then this time around, I'll say it's, it's more fun to be able to connect with people because what happens a lot, and I'm sure you both are very familiar with this, is when you're living in a world that's digital, you don't get a lot of like positive feedback. You get a lot of like- So much negative yeah, feedback. Yeah, like right? it's like more like you get the trolls, right? But the people who yeah. are just think like, oh, great, I'm, I'll vote for her. You're never going to hear from them. And then when you get to go to an event and like, hug people and say hello. It's such a different experience because it's not so lopsided. You know, I would say you hear from both extremes, not your just everyday voter and just the experience of being with everyday voters talking about issues. It's the best. And I now I'll never take it for granted. Totally. Before I shift us to policy, a quick, I'll give you my perspective or like what my how I think about central Oregon politics. And I would love to hear like how that's different from you or, or what, like, so my district in house district 25, it's basically just the city of Tigard and some Beaverton, some Metzger. It's a lot more democratic than your district, not a ton more, but it's like D plus 19 or something like that. But I think of my voters generally speaking as like sort of center left or left, right. In bend or central Oregon region, I think, and, and I think like most people in the district are sort of like within the middle chunk of the spectrum. There's not as much on either end of the spectrum. What I think about in Central Oregon, I have a friend who actually I think you know as well, John Bullock, oh, who yeah, lives absolutely. in Redmond. And so I think of places like Redmond as you've got literal Confederate flags waving in parking lots, pretty free, like not an unusual thing to see that out and about. And you've got some people who are like very left wing and like very much into social justice. And like, I almost think of central Oregon as having a broader diversity. It's not like your district is, it might be D plus four, but it's not like everyone is a moderate. It's like, there's a lot of people on both sides. Does that kind of match how you think about it? Or how do you think of like the political distribution of folks who live in your region? I would say, I think that's a Fairly good assessment. My sister lives in your district. And I would I would say a lot oh, of our cool. voters are pretty similar, right? Center left. And we do have, you know, so I only have a small part of Redmond. I have Southwest Redmond, which is actually more progressive than it's like the, the progressive corner of Redmond. It's, it's like progressive <laughs> corner. I mean, I, I think it's still, if, if you look at the numbers, I think it's still Republican, but it's definitely a more progressive part of Redmond. Interesting. And democratic. And it's been leaning that way for I think four years. And then even though, again, still, it's still red, you know, and then the rest, as you move north on the west side, still kind of stays the same, like leaning more, but still red. And then the east side is just, I would say probably like plus 20 or something like that. So 
varying extremes, even by neighborhoods. So there's a lot of, a lot of differing opinions, but I would say we just kind of like with anything you hear from the most on the extremes, but I would say most people are probably, I would put in center left. Most people are just going about their everyday business, raising their families. And, totally. you know, that's yeah, a super but, fair mean, point. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I would say that people have more in common than they don't, but are, I think that our extremes are probably more extreme than in your disease. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, that's a fair point. It's not like there's a huge chunk of voters who are flying the Confederate flag. It's still uh, probably yeah. a handful of people. It's just more common over there than it is probably on our side of the Cascades. Right. And you you see it more, right? Like we, we see the Confederate flags, you know, I make, I don't keep it a secret that I'm a Jewish candidate. I think I'd be the first, I think the first Jewish elected representative from out here. I'm, I'm not sure. Wow. And, you know, that stuff gives me pause <laughs> and, you know, like family safety kind of stuff, but I just don't, it's not as prevalent as, you know. Have you encountered any like, I don't know, direct attacks or threats because of that part of your identity on the campaign trail or not, not really? I think I've been pretty lucky that I haven't really experienced a ton of anti-Semitism, but I, I have, like I've gotten messages on Twitter and stuff, but I just let them roll off. Yeah. Got work to do. I don't um, have time for that. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Twitter in general, probably. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've actually found it to be a pretty much people really respectful. And I mean, I think that's the Shoots County, right? Like you do your thing, I'll do mine. And we're yeah, good. that's interesting. Okay, so we're going to shift a little bit towards policy. So we saw that you serve on the Oregon Task Force for School Safety. You mentioned this earlier as this being a priority for you. Obviously, Uvalde was maybe a transformative event on this issue. Like, it seems like there's at least a higher likelihood of federal action than there has at any moment since Sandy Hook, at least. But putting the sort of federal national level aside, and I know your work on the task force preceded Uvalde, and this has actually been ongoing for for months, if not years. When you think about Oregon and serving in the state legislature, what should Oregon be doing that it isn't doing? What are the next steps for Oregon when it comes to school safety? Well, I could talk about this for hours. Um, <laughs> it's a so podcast. Take as long as you'd like. <laughs> I know. I'll just go forever and ever. So as a task force, I sit as a volunteer. I say I'm rep neuron sidekick and cool. go to all the meetings. And she and I work on policy and stuff. And that's been going on for years. Um, and so it's such a hard question right so because when we narrow it down to what can our schools do right now what have we learned from the past other events parkland uvalde i I mean i also think that this last one is just an abysmal response on 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 all levels that i hope never happens again i hope i hope no, no other school shooting ever happens again but what we see consistently when you look at the Parkland report, and I've been working with one Lori Aldehef, Alyssa's mom, on Alyssa's law, and you know, we've developed a professional friendship, is that what is supposed to happen in an event almost never does. Right. So the communication mm-hmm. that's supposed to happen, it doesn't. The line of events that's supposed to happen, they don't happen. Are you talking about and- Law enforcement or school staff or both? All of it from top to bottom, right? So let's just take Parkland as an example. The radios were 25 years old. So there was a literal communication hearing problem, right? Wasn't that the issue with Uvalde too? They said that like the radios weren't made to transmit inside of buildings, which I mean, 
I mean, again, that I know there's a lot of news coming out of that, so who knows what's confirmed or not. But when I heard that, I mean, it's just you would think a police radio would need to be able to transmit within any building. So yeah, that it's just it, things like that are frankly just shocking. But that, I didn't know that about Parkland. That's crazy. Now that that's two major shootings where something as simple as the radio has malfunctioned. That's just crazy. Did the radio malfunctioned? Or I guess it just, it was so old that it just didn't do what it was supposed to do, right? And then they were watching video that was 20 minutes delayed. So the shooter was in the building for an hour and 20 minutes in Parkland. And they thought that and he, there's a 20 minute delay, right? And they had SROs, the SRO did not respond. So I would say the first step is having a plan in place and a risk assessment. So what happened in Bend even, I think, two weeks ago is that a sexual predator got into our school and, you know, we have, Bend Pine is really, like, I just could, like, rave about it for an excellent school district and has pretty good security. And someone who was a predator got into the school. It was actually a student that alerted a parent via text. And so it can happen in schools, even with the system that we have, which is you have to be scanned in on um, your license and it tells you if you're good and prints out the thing. It can happen anywhere. And so it's just like making sure that those policies are not in place. That's great that they're in place, but are they actually happening as they are supposed to and doing a thorough risk assessment? So at my daughter's school, since this event happened, we have single point entry. And I know that this conversation has gotten hijacked by saying like, well, let's get rid of the doors. I don't know where that came from. It made, it makes it really hard for people who are working really hard in like school security and like trauma informed stuff to have a conversation because there is a nugget of truth to single point entry, right? So in and out one door, that's it. Volunteers, parents, in and out of one door. It is the cheapest, most effective thing that you can do to limit these kind of exposures and keep all your doors because uh, that's obviously not safe. Don't prop open doors. <laughs> yeah, it's just, so it's a it's a policy, right? Just like in and out one door. And then the fact that everyone knows you're in and out one door, people can't just pop in. Yeah. Right, because what happens is you get comfortable, people get lax and just pop in and out. And that's no one's fault, right? Because we all deserve to live in a safe society where you could pop in and out of your school. Like I don't put blame on it, on anyone. It's just that we live in this world where this is now a reality. Yeah. And so just really making sure that those policies are in place and doing a thorough risk assessment to know what is actually happening in the schools in case there is an emergency. Because these communication failures, I mean, yeah, I, you know, like you're saying in Texas, when you read these reports, you're like, it's the radios, it's the things like this could have saved lives. And again, you know, people, I you know I get criticized a bit saying like, well, it's just gun policy. And it, I always just say, yes, and. Because not only are we living in a world where we have gun violence, we also have natural disasters and mm -hmm. all these events that we need radios that work. We need parents that can be communicated to properly within an appropriate amount of time. And we need multi-emergency response to know exactly where the event took place. And we're having increased behavior issues in schools. You know, um, so it can do all of this. And so in Alyssa's law, which is named for Alyssa that lost her life um, in Parkland, what happened mm -hmm. with Alyssa is what happens when you hear a loud noise is that students run out, they don't run in. And so she ran out. And so she was standing in the door. And so he shot her in the arm. And then so she wasn't able to move. And then he came back 
since he was able to stay in the building forever and <sighs> shot her again. Oh my God. So when we talk about when Alyssa's mom, Lori talks about seconds, these seconds that we can buy with a better emergency response is the difference between life and death sometimes. So really quickly, what is Alyssa's law? What would it actually do? So the bottom, you know, bottom compliance, you can go higher, but you know, floor level compliance is a silent panic button in the building. And so it doesn't make a sound, which is important, but it would alert all the teachers to bring their students inside. Just, but no automatic locks on the doors because oh, so got if, students. So if you press the button, it means get everyone in the classroom and lock the door. Right. But it also sends an exact GPS location to not just law enforcement, but every single multi-emergency system that you would need in an event of a school shooting. Got it. Okay. So okay. that there's a collaborative response with exact information that doesn't rely on student having to call because another thing that happened in Parkland is there was 911 redundancies, but also kids are freaking out as oh my gosh. Right. So you can't yeah. rely on that's not fair. That's none of this is okay. Let me back up. None of this is fair. None right. of this is right. None of this is okay. How can we respond to emergencies no matter what that emergency is better? Well I like the way that you talk about that because you know what has happened and again, hopefully Uvalde is a different thing, and it seems like it is. There's Republicans and Democrats legitimately working together on a series of proposals. It's, in my opinion, of course not enough and not as far as they should be going, but it's frankly a better response than we've seen at the federal level in literally decades. But like, what has traditionally happened is our side of the aisle traditionally says we need gun safety reform, which is true. Their side of the aisle says, no, 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 this is a mental health issue, which there is truth to that we have a, a horribly underfunded and under-resourced mental health system in this country. And then to your point, there's actually a lot more involved here than just mental health and guns. There's infrastructure, there's safety response, et cetera. But it's hard to have that kind of conversation without jumping into the sort of tribalistic nature of it, which comes from a place of like, I think, genuine anger and outrage of like how it is insane to be talking about this the way that we are right like mm -hmm. when I was in high school which wasn't that long ago and was like at the beginning stages of the the school shooting like the doors were always open like if you you, you any door you if you wanted to sneak in the school because you're a little late to lunch you'd go to like it, that was just and there's nothing like it seems weird that we have to take that away that sort of freedom or like, I guess the casual nature of making school kind of welcoming and more inclusive, but to your point, like, it's just a different world. So I know Alex is going to talk about, do the opposite of what I just said and talk about guns and, and all that stuff. But yeah, I've just, I appreciate the way that you kind of framed that broadly. Cause I think it's really important. I mean, it's hard. Like this is all hard and all I want is for there to never be a school shooting again. Yeah, And that if anything ever happened, that I know that I did everything I possibly could to prevent something, right? Um, nobody wants this world that we're living in. Um, but I just have a relentless hope that, that we're at a time of change. Um, and nobody, it doesn't matter what political party these kids' parents belong to. Totally. They deserve to feel safe and loved and nurtured in their school. And I, I, it's just hard to make that happen in the world that we live in right now. Yeah. Alex? Yeah. So moving on to, of course, the topic of guns, which has come up quite frequently, really after any school shooting. But I think there's, it seems like there's actually something coming from the Senate. I guess we'll, we'll see if that actually does happen. But of course, there's two sides to this issue in terms of, of the gun perspective. There is 
folks on the left who are saying we need to ban what they deem as assault rifles, the AR-15s, AK-47s, there's a lot of other weapons that fall into that category. Then you have people on the right saying, that's clearly not the right answer. Someone could do this much damage with a handgun, which of course there has been mass shootings that have happened with handguns before. We need more school resource officers. We need to arm teachers and kind of things like that. I'm curious to where you kind of fall on both of those issues, or if you even think looking at those right now, maybe isn't the best solution because there won't really be any progress there. Rather, you just kind of look to the reforms that you just talked about. That's a great question. So I want to do all the reforms I'm talking about. And I've been working on these reforms before this happened. And so I've been you know, focused on this as something that we can do. But also, I think we have to absolutely have to address, you know, the elephant in the room, which is, you know, gun safety. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in, you know, my, my grandparents are hunters. They're gun owners. I then we moved to Georgia. Like I'm very, maybe have a different experience. Um, just I've lived in really Republican areas. I have really Republican family. And they also don't want to see any kids get shot at school anymore. So hunting is a way of, of life for people and, and for the way that my grandparents grew up in the depression, it was literally food on the table. And I think sometimes my democratic colleagues, we, we miss that, that that is actually a way of life and a way of providing for your family. And when we do this all or nothing approach, it we just only elevates that tribalism and gets us further away from a solution. So as far as like an all gun ban, absolutely not. As far as assault rifles, and I think there are things we can do. We can limit how many magazines you have. Safe storage, which we have here. It's not as, I don't know how much teeth it has, but you know, one of the most effective things you can do is lock your ammo away from a gun. Like that is proven. And again, it's just like what I talked about single point entry. There's things that are fairly free that you can do. And you know, background checks was like 88% of people agree on background checks. And we know that we know when we talk about the mental health piece, you know, those kids under 21, what are responsible? Something like 47% of the shootings. I I, I was reading something. I, it was it was something shocking. And I'm not sure what the number was. And you know, those kids, their brains are not fully formed. It was for what was the data about though? It was about that the amount of the shootings were of kids that were under 21. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like, I'm, I'm blanking on the statistic, but it was a lot. I remember yeah. like being pretty stunned by it. And so owning a gun is a, is a huge responsibility. And I don't know if that's a responsibility an 18-year-old is ready to take on, especially a weapon of war. Um, I know I probably wasn't at 18. In full disclosure, I'm, I'm not a gun owner. But, you know, we we take safety so seriously in this country about everything. As a lawyer, I, I know that, you know, there's there's rules for everything. And it seems like there's an opportunity to have better rules that will keep our kids and families safe. And, of course, Oregon is almost at the top of the list for suicides. So it's not just that. It's also keeping keeping people safe from self-harm. And, you know, what we talk about a lot is we can create friction between a decision, right? So if like, if your ammo is locked and your gun is over there, that, that's a moment of friction, right? A moment to think. But when it's just right there and ready, that's not a moment of friction. And so how can we create these moments of friction? Totally. It's just suicide. I was just and, getting, I was just getting lunch with one of my former teachers who I really look up to. I think he's a, he is a gun owner. And he was like, 
so many gun owners like agree with many of these reforms, which I find really interesting and powerful. But like the example we were talking about is waiting periods. He was like, he was like, if someone can't wait two or three days or a week to get a gun, like that in and of itself is a bit alarming. Like I need a gun right now. I need to leave this store with a gun is alarming, particularly when a huge chunk of people buying guns already are gun owners. So like even things like that, it's like, I, it doesn't, that point of friction to your point that giving people space to process or talk or um, you're definitely going to save lives with that. There's no way you're not going to save lives with that. Especially you're in a moment of dopamine, right? You need it right now. You need it right then. And that like come down off of what, uh, you know, the dopamine or whatever that reaction might be is really important. And to the fact that what you, that means you need the the second and, and why is that? So yeah, creating those moments of frictions. I mean, that's probably true with any purchase. It's probably good to take a couple days. <laughs> yeah, you know, like from any consumer protection, maybe take a couple days on a big purchase because yeah, you're going to make a better and wiser choice. Totally. Okay, so we're going to try to squeeze in a couple other policy areas, and but before we, I, I, I've been thinking about this. So there's obviously issues that I'm hearing from my voters that you're hearing from your voters that I think in districts across housing is a big one. Homelessness actually, I think is a big one as well across the state. But I was, I was interested if you, like when you're talking to voters on the doors or at events, are you hearing things that you think are specific to central Oregon? Or maybe it's like a different spin on issues because of where you live and there's unique challenges in the Bend Redmond area. So I guess, yeah, what's your response to that? Like, what are voters saying to you that you think are unique to your region, your district? I would say wildfires. That uh, is from mind. Uh, I mean, we, we've, I've had friends move because they're like, I, I'm just done with it, right? My daughter has asthma. We have to just leave. And so I think we, we've had a really rainy year. Maybe I want some of the most rainfall that we've had, and hopefully that will curb that. But next year and and who knows right we're not talking about regular forest fires at this point we're talking about mega fires you know when you build burn over a million acres we can't treat that as the same fire as you know if you were to throw a match and something right right there's there's different for there's different strategies for things like that that would curb that kind of fire versus a mega fire um, which is what we're experiencing here and it really um affects people mm. Last year, I believe it was, my fire alarm went off in my house. Just because of the outdoor smoke. Yes. And I Ugh. live in a new home that's energy efficient. And I have special filters because of my daughter's asthma. And my fire alarm still went off. That is so... Like best case scenario Ugh. for like smoke not coming in. And it's still, this still gave up. The fire alarm went off. When I was in, I was living, I was in Tigard in a different, different house in Tigard during the the big wildfires last summer. And I, we did, we did the, the jerry rigged, like, like filter to the back of the fan thing. And they were just getting filthy from, and we, you're obviously a lot closer to some of these fires than we were. Like, I wonder what the long-term health impacts might be from especially for little kids who's like not fully developed and are like breathing in these the toxic smoke, like, uh, makes me so sad. Are there policies or investments that you're thinking about that you want to bring to the table in 2023 on wildfires or mitigating the impacts? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things 
again, I guess back to kind of infrastructure things that maybe aren't so flashy or how can we work with insurance companies to make homes safer? So uh, Euro is only as safe as your neighbor. So if they have a shingled roof that isn't fire safe, your house is not fire safe. And so what can we do to create a collaborative process where you can be rewarded through either payments or uh, sorry, reduction of payment or higher if, you're, if your house is not in compliance? Because the way that the risk model works right now is pretty outdated. And I think it can be brought up to co- to more sophisticated modeling so that we know where risks are and we can create a, you know, a collaborative process to make homes safer so that they're not just tender boxes. And there's some homes that are tender boxes. And then you could have in your home invested in all these things to make your house safe. But like a lot of things, you know, your, your neighbor's choices also matter a lot. So, and making sure that we have safe evacuation routes like we do in Sun River and, and Sisters and stuff like that. And then looking at, and I'm not actually sure what our state does on this level, but you know, there's a lot of satellite technology that's pretty brand new that's on the commercial level. So it's a lot cheaper than you know, how it used to be. So just like straight up commercial satellites. Like mapping. Um, companies like Planet. What does it do? They like map the fires? They can, they can yeah. And so actually with the last fire, they brought these commercial companies in and they were able to pinpoint where it started. Okay. So how can we use that technology to stop things faster and in a more sophisticated way um, now that that technology is fairly cheap? Huh. But again, so I don't know what our state does on that, that level. I'm just aware what the companies do. Yeah, so transitioning just a little bit on policy, I want to ask two questions that are a little bit more focused on the urban-rural divide and Ben's development too as a city. So I was just looking at some some population numbers online, and hopefully these are correct, which I'm assuming that they probably are. But as of 1990, there was about 20,000 people in Bend. And I remember going to Bend as a kid. It was a I would say not super rural place, but it was a pretty rural area. It wasn't underdeveloped. They're just, I mean, again, there wasn't that many people that were basically there. Now I believe Ben's population is around over a hundred thousand. And most of the migration that's going into Bend are people who are coming from other areas, such as Seattle, places in California, probably some people from the East Coast, but I know those are kind of the two big ones. And a lot of those people that are moving there, of course, are younger. They have higher income jobs. A lot of them work remote. A lot of them, I would say, are also from city areas, or at least that's what some, not all of them, of course, but that's at least what some of, some of the data shows. And obviously this stuff's a little bit spotty, but let's just kind of save that assumption. I think that over time, I mean, actually, I don't think we know, right? The cost of housing, running a business, cost of living in general has gone dramatically up in Bend just as the city has developed. And I think that a lot of the people, or decent amount of people there, sort of feel like in some way they may be being displaced, right? Sort of like same in areas of Portland that are older, right? That are developing and now are rising significantly in cost. What sort of policies do you think that can be taken to kind of help to ease that burden, right? Because of course, we want cities to be able to grow. We want there to be new stores. We want there to be new businesses. We want there to be more jobs. But then of course, there's people who are now being displaced from their homes, either because their property taxes are too high, or maybe their rent has gone up astronomically. I mean, I know that's an issue that a lot of cities across the country are facing. I know that Ben does have a specific question about affordable housing, so we'll get into that soon too. But how do you kind of 
look at addressing those issues or maybe even just kind of tackling them at a high level? Right. I think affordability in Bend is, I would say, top of mind for a lot of people. And so right now the medium house price in Bend is around $800,000. And I believe it was five, just two years ago. So that's a significant increase. That is wild. 800,000. How are people graduating from college today ever going to buy a house? (laughs) It's like, that is wild. Absolutely. So, and Redmond is also not far behind. Redmond is pretty expensive now as well. So people are being displaced to Lapine, which is also increasing in cost. And Tumalo has kind of always been expensive. So it's really, really expensive. So say if your house is $800,000 and now your mortgage rate is at 6%, like that is really unaffordable. You can afford nothing other than your house payment for a lot of people probably. Right, exactly. And then, you know, when you think about American wealth and how it's traditionally grown and generationally, it's through property. Yep. And so it's not just an issue for now. It's also an issue for a hundred for years from now of, of income inequality and who's able to grow generational wealth and, who, and who's not. So housing is really expensive. And on top of it, Deschutes County was hit incredibly hard by the subprime mortgage crisis. We were hit, I think, one of the hardest counties in the state. So almost nothing got built for, I think it was like seven years or something. Mm-hmm. This is the, the 2009, 2010 crash. Yes. Yes. Interesting. So yeah, so it's actually that's behind. a nationwide phenomenon. I, I forgot the exact years if it's 2010 to 2020 or if it's 2012 to 2020 or 2022, but it was one of the lowest periods in US history for number of houses built, which is of course leading to the rise in prices and affordability for people all over the country. And then you throw in a war and a pandemic, and we've just created a serious, serious problem, right? So from a policy perspective just, you know, top line of just like making choices that address affordability for everyday working families and, you know, for them to be able to grow that wealth that we're talking about and to own a home rent here for two bedroom or one bedroom is more than my mortgage. Right. So, and I know most states that rent has gone up around 28%, I think is the national figure. I would say it might even be more here because we just don't have that many apartments. Yeah. So, and then I was also listening to the indicator at NPR and it was saying that, let's say your average person, $400,000 is that, you know, that was the mortgage that they picked, just $400,000. With the mortgage rate changes, it is now dropped to, you know, before that it was like 80% of households could afford that. And now it's like 16, it, w- it was something crazy. I'm, I'm being the worst with stats today, but it was so, it was dramatic. Yeah. So as a policymaker, just keeping that front of mind is that, you know, what can families afford? How can we make this better in a way that we can is to build more housing? Yes. Right. It is a supply issue, but also we need to build that housing with cost in mind for what 10 years looks right now. So if we, and especially in Oregon, people in central Oregon, people come here because it's beautiful, right? We don't want to just build suburbs to the high heavens. And, you know, I'm from Atlanta, it's the city of sprawl. And yeah. My husband's from Los Angeles. So we don't want that sprawl and we need to build housing. So I would say the Stevens Road Track, um, I think it came out of HB 2001. It's a really good example. We did exceed our UGB on that. And the way I see land use is every now and then we need to release the pressure, right? Yeah. Like that's how we can do it in a really responsible way. Um, but to say that we'll never go beyond our UGB is probably um, unsustainable, but how can we do it in a responsible way? 
in a way that respects our, our lands and why people live here because it's beautiful. So Stevens Road Track has affordable housing units for teachers and things huh? like that, because that is where we struggle the most in Bend is that our teachers, our nurses cannot afford to live here. So our hospital can't recruit good people and our hospital serves 300 miles around because they can't afford to live here. Yeah. You know, my husband works at the hospital and he says it's an issue all the time, right? If you can't buy a house here, you can't find childcare. The other huge issue here, you can't live here. Well, and if, if, if the teachers and the nurses can't afford to live there, then what about, I mean, Bend is a huge tourist economy. What about the people who are working in hotels and restaurants and coffee shops? Like where are they supposed to live? Like, I, I think it was, yeah, when we had, was it Sherry Helt who was telling us that they're hiring like 15 year olds to, <laughs> to do some of these jobs now because there's literally yeah. no one available. That's, that's accurate. Absolutely. I know I try to get my little sisters to come here for the summer. I was like, this is the place to be. <laughs> yeah. You can get a good job and you're really responsible, but yeah, it's, it's hard on people. And it's, yeah, I guess say as a, as a, you know, future leg- legislator, you know, God willing, is just always having families, always having people who are trying to retire just front of mind constantly and building policy and economic policy a way that centers them that we can get out of this. And I know that we will get out of this. A lot of this is time. And that's a really hard thing when you can't afford to put food on the table. We had, when we talked to Lynn Peterson, the president of Metro, she, we talked a little bit about Metro's housing bond. And basically there's this massive, really significant, probably the largest investment in a long time in affordable housing in the metro region. And we talked through the number, I used to have them memorized, but we talked through the numbers and like, basically it helped. It did, a, it, it, it built a lot, thousands of, of units, but because of the scale of the problem, like it just wasn't nearly sufficient to even really make a, a dent in the trend lines. There's an article from the, in the Oregonian, here's an excerpt from it. In Oregon, studies show that the state is short an estimated 111,000 housing units for its existing population and must build as many as 30,000 homes a year to catch up and meet population growth. And so what I have been thinking about with this is like the scale of the problem is so gigantic that we need to be a lot more creative in how we think about it than just like, well, we need to spend more money on affordable housing. Well, we don't have enough money to in the state to just like dump it all into building 111,000 units overnight. So I was curious, I've heard some, like, I don't think there's a great answer on this, but I'm just curious how you think about or if you have any ideas on, given the scale of the problem, how do we begin to craft solutions that can like meet the level of the moment? Yeah, I'm right. My friend Melanie Kebler always uh-huh. says that, you know, we could build all the time and we just don't have enough time to even catch up to the demand, just like on the time that it takes to build a house, right? Right, right. So even if we had all the money and all the the resources, we don't have enough resource of time to even meet that demand. So I am really open to some of the creative solutions that I've seen coming out of kind of incubators and things like that, of just some kind of easy housing to build really quickly that isn't a long-term solution and maybe doesn't meet someone's long-term housing need but can meet an interim housing need you know kind of like the the pods and the things that are affordable um i'm really open to all of that again that's not my area of expertise i know people are very innovative and creative and i um i'm open to all of it um we need to we 
we need to have him on the podcast, but um, former Governor Kitzhaber gave a presentation to the Board of Forestry um, where he's, he basically, in fact, your constituents might be interested or into this, but he kind of, I'm, I'm going to get the, the details wrong, but the, the broad framework is basically the issue of housing is actually tied to the issue of timber production, which is also tied to the issue of land management and um, how we allocate um, how we make decisions about how we use different kinds of public lands and private lands, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and basically, you know, if we're producing all these materials in Oregon, uh, let's make it a lot more, a lot cheaper. Let's uh, to, to produce materials and to build things here. Um, so anyway, that's, that's one, one kind of out of the box creative idea, but I haven't really, there's not a lot that I've heard um, that I feel, you know, could meet the scale. Um, so that'll be, the, that'll be a big challenge for, for 2023, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, just putting my plug in for consumer yeah. protections, yeah. you know, when, when things are not regulated, like crypto is not regulated, um, some people will make a lot of money and, and others will not. Um, it's just to how much those decisions affect everyday consumers for decades. Yep. And as someone who came out of law school in the recession, I was making $15 an hour. Oh my God. Um, you know, it's taken a lot for my generation to build up. And, and, and just to like, you know, if that hadn't happened, if we hadn't, you know, had those mortgage-backed securities um, fail in the way that they did, and because of like the really high risk profile, our housing situation would look a lot different and a lot wouldn't have been lost. And I can't say that I don't think that all those people like learned their lesson. Uh, you know, if you look at the trajectory of a lot of the people that were behind the subprime mortgage crisis, they went to something called sovereign wealth funds huh. next. So um, like Malaysia, um, the, uh, the Saudis have a sovereign wealth fund as well and found ways to make money there that were pretty unscrupulous. So I just think that those, those protections to are really important because again, people are, don't always make those decisions on their own. Interesting. Um, do you have, do you happen to have five or 10 minutes more yeah. for one more grant? Okay. Cause this, Alex thinks it might be a lame question and it might be, um, but we know you have a background in clean energy stuff. So um, we have a clean energy question. So Alex, right. there's your tee up. Okay. So yeah, we did have one question about this uh, lithium mine that's being set up. And I know that it's it's in southern uh, eastern Oregon. It's also on the border of Nevada. Uh, but essentially, there is a lithium mine that is being developed, which I believe is either the biggest or the second biggest lithium mine in the United States, which, of course, lithium can be used for batteries. Uh, I know there are certain types of renewable energy. I believe it's certain types of solar panels, too, that need this lithium to be able to develop. Uh, of course, most of the lithium in the world is either in China, or it's controlled by Chinese companies in, you know, third world countries and things like that controlled by Chinese state enterprises. Uh, I'm curious, because we know that you have a background uh, in renewable energy of what you think, you know, in addition to this mine, I think there's some other kind of projects that are happening right now in different parts of Oregon, such as bigger solar farms, bigger wind farms, and things like that, uh, of how if Oregon is well positioned to kind of lead the forefront to these development of new technologies, and then ways that policymakers could potentially support that. Yeah, absolutely. So I always say that clean energy is security. So and global security and supply chain security. 
So when we're reliant on places like China, Russia for our energy, um, it makes us less safe and it makes us forced into making poor choices. I think that is very clear, especially if you see the way that Germany continues to conduct themselves. They are just very de dependent um, on Russian oil and not making great decisions um, for Ukraine. I'm biased though as a Ukrainian Jew. So um, energy is security and it, they cannot be um, separated. So lithium, I'm not an expert on lithium. I will defer to experts on that. I mean, it's like any, any mine, it comes with a lot of environmental hazards, um, water, soil, all those things. But again, having our own resources is also important. As, the, as I said, there's always so much gray area. Um, and since I'm not an expert on lithium, I, I won't discuss too much about, about it. Um, but as far as solar, which is um, my background, um, in full disclosure, I haven't practiced law since 20, for about a year and a half to focus on my family during the <laughs> pandemic because <laughs> it was impossible. Yeah. Um, it's just a campaign. So I just campaign and I'm a mom and that's my focus. Um, but lots and lots of years doing the financing side of that, those projects. Um, and we'll go back to that as things get returned to, to normal. Normal, um, yeah. Normal, yeah, in the <laughs> off season. I'll continue to consult. So we can lead the way on solar, especially in Eastern Oregon. We have the sun. We need to do better at plugging into our grid. And these, I guess these are kind of like very like nerdy, deep wonky. Questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like top what line. Is, we, what does that mean though? Like making the projects better connected to the grid. Right. So Idaho power is a lot easier to connect to their grid than our grid. Like, like private solar farms. Right. Basically? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Because of, I mean, I literally know nothing about this, but I because I don't of, fully understand why I just know that that's the better. Case. And we uh -huh. can need to do better. Yeah. Okay. So another another area, again, I guess I guess we're getting like wonky and granular, but you know, when we're covering all that EFU land with solar farms, like is that the best choice either? Right. So maybe putting them on big box stores or things like that is also a method that's probably more friendly to the environment when we don't really have the wind here to to create the power that we need. I've done big wind farms in Oklahoma and Texas, and those are huge, huge projects, but they create good jobs. And that is really, really important. So again, we can create our own energy. That's a security thing that also helps our supply chain and our local food chain. It's also interconnected and it allows people with that non-productive EFU land to actually make money off of it but making sure that it's truly non-productive EFU land and not an environmental hazard. So yeah, I think we can absolutely lead the way. I am beyond excited about what the future can hold for that, but also for good middle-class jobs, especially here in Central Oregon, that are living wage, that you can buy a home here, all those things. Um, and I think that not only is Oregon, but I think Central Oregon, we are supposed to be a leader in this. That's awesome. We love ending on an optimistic note. Um, so our last question is always, you know, if if folks are interested in getting involved in your campaign or maybe reading a little bit more about you and your background, where's the best place for them to go to to be in touch? Yeah. So our, my website is emersonvotes.com, one M, E-M-E-R-S-O-N, like you're probably at your microwave or the poet, whatever you pick. And <laughs> I, you can find me on all social media at Emerson, the number four for Oregon. 
Awesome. Well, Emerson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really enjoyed the conversation. You're kind of like our central Oregon whisperer. Uh, so we, we, we appreciated it. And uh, listeners, thanks so much for listening. And Alex, final words before we go? Always check us out on YouTube. <laughs> the YouTube plug. All right. Thanks, everybody.